Chapter 13 of The Submarine Boys on Duty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan. The Submarine Boys on Duty by Victor G. Durham. Chapter 13 A High Seas Mystery. Splash! Without a word as to his intentions, Hal Hastings went overboard. His head showed above the waves almost immediately as he swam toward the other craft of mystery. Jack Benson did not immediately reappear. When he did come up, it was under the overturned hull. He was obliged to make a half-dive in order to come out and up into the open. By the time he did appear, his chum was close to him. Hurt? hailed Hal. Not a bit, responded Jack, after blowing out a mouthful of water. Then climb aboard with me and see what these prized lunatics mean by their behavior, requested Hal, not caring who heard him. The sulky young man made no effort to oppose their boarding the hull. Probably he feared to make too plain an opposition with that dark hulled, somber, ugly-looking submarine torpedo boat lying so close at hand. Now heave us a line, Ep, hailed Hal. The line came and was caught. Hal slipped over the further side with it, vanishing underwater long enough to make it fast to one of the submerged cleats of the sloop's rails. That will hold, he reported, clambering back on the bottom of the sloop. Now, sir, turning to the old man, since you have a life preserver on, you can easily get over to the submarine boat by holding to the line and pulling yourself along. I'm afraid I can't get across and keep my satchel, whined the older man nervously. I'll take that over and swim with it, proposed Hal, briskly reaching out his hand for the bag. Oh, no, no, protested the man. I'd sooner stay here. The satchel doesn't go out of my hands. But you better take to the weather, father, and do the best you can, advised the younger man in a growl. These fellows belong to the United States Navy, and they're determined to rescue us. Trust yourself to the water, and I'll keep along with you. These people will take us by force if we refuse any further. If mistaking the crew of the Pollard for members of the United States Navy would make matters move any more quickly, there was no need to dispute the mind of either of these queer men. But Jack and Hal gave each other a queer, amused look. The older man took to the water without difficulty. Buoyed up by his life preserver, he was able to hold his satchel with one hand, pulling himself along the slightly sagging rope with the other. His son swam along lazily beside him, Epp, outside the rail, but holding to it with one hand, employed his other in helping the father and son up to the deck. When this had been accomplished, Hal threw off the line after which he and Jack swam back. Epp drew them up to the platform deck. "'Go down below and hear their account of themselves if you want to,' said David Pollard, leaning against the wheel. "'For me, I'm sick of that pair already.' Jack and Hal had quite enough boyish curiosity to go below. Epp soon followed. The father, dripping wet and still clutching his satchel with one hand, sat on one of the long seats of the cabin, while the son, scowling, Pace back and forth. It seems to me that I know you, Farnham was saying to the elder man. 
I'm uh, very sure you don't, replied the one addressed uneasily. Don't you know who I am? pursued the boat builder. No, I very certainly I don't. Let's see, did you ever hear of a man named Arthur Miller or C. Bogue? The elder man started, paling a trifle. The younger man stopped his walk, his face settling into a black scowl. No, no, I don't know Arthur Miller, replied the older man with an effort. Queer, mused Farnham. It just came to me that you were Mr. Miller. However, of course, you know best about that. Thank you, nodded the older man, with an attempt at a smile. I started to tell you that my son started out late this afternoon in the sloop that lies overturned yonder, intending to put me aboard a yacht of friends who are passing down the coast. I have most pressing business with those friends. The business is to be finished on the coming trip. It seems that our friends are late. Still, I know they must be on their way down the coast. As they haven't shown up, at least not close enough, proposed Jacob Farnham, we'll put you ashore at Dunhaven, and doubtless you can catch up with your friends in some way. Dunhaven? Then you must be Mr. Farnham, cried the older man eagerly. This must be the torpedo boat you are building, and these young men belong to the Navy midshipmen, no doubt. There are no Navy men on board, replied the builder. These young men are my employees. But we are losing time drifting about on the high seas. We will put you back to Dunhaven, and you can tell us your story, if you choose, on the way. But my father doesn't care to go ashore, interposed the son. It is vitally important to him that he find the schooner and join his friends aboard. In fact, I might add that a very considerable sum in the way of a profitable business deal depends upon his going aboard the schooner. But as that craft isn't here, how can we put your father aboard? Mr. Farnham asked. We are right in the path that is to be taken by our friend's yacht, replied the son, since this is not a naval vessel, and you're not under government orders. I take it you can as well wait here for two or three hours, if need be. My father will pay suitably for your time and service if you will consent to wait until the yacht appears. I don't need any pay for extending the ordinary courtesies of the sea to those who have suffered wreck, replied Mr. Farnham. Whether you take pay or not, sir, will you wait and put my father aboard the yacht? demanded the son eagerly. A vast interest, believe me, sir, is at stake. Oh, there's a very great stake in this, cried the older man, tremulously. I appeal to you, Mr. Farnham, since that is your name, to help me out in this, and if you will accept handsome compensation, very glad to offer it. David Pollard, who had heard some of this talk through the open manhole as he lounged by the wheel, now called down to report, There's some kind of craft on the northern horizon throwing up searchlight signals. That's our friend's yacht, it must be, proclaimed the young man, darting forward and resting one hand on the rail of the spiral stairway. Now you see, if you will be good to us, we shall not very long trespass on your patience. "'A schooner, a sailing craft, equipped with a searchlight?' asked Jack. The sun flashed upon the submarine boy, a look in which there was something of a scowl. But he explained quickly, "'The boat has auxiliary power and a complete electrical plant, Mr. Farnham. You'll steam toward that searchlight, won't you? I tell you, I am positive it is the boat of our friends.' "'Well, I'll put you where you want to be, of course,' agreed the boat builder though he spoke with some reluctance. 
for he realized that some great mystery underlay this whole affair. "'Come up, Benson, take the wheel,' called Mr. Pollard. So Jack went up and out on the deck. Eph followed him, while Hal went to the engine room to watch more of Grant Andrews' work there. Jack threw on the speed wheel, then steered north, while Eph threw the searchlight skyward in the path of the approaching vessel. Within fifteen minutes the two craft were in sight of each other. Five minutes later they were within hailing distance. The other craft was a schooner of some eighty or ninety tons and was using an auxiliary gasoline engine. It was Jack who sounded a signal on the auto whistle for the other craft to lay to. Then Benson steered in closer. The two who had been rescued standing not far from him on the platform deck. The older man still clutched his satchel. Submarine ahoy! came a hail from the schooner's deck. Is that you, Mr. Miller? Yes, uh, hesitantly admitted the old man, at which Jacob Farnham smiled grimly, though he said nothing. Put off a boat and send it alongside, will you? The boat was lowered from the schooner, manned by two sailors who steered by a deck officer. The boat came alongside the slooping hull of the torpedo boat. You weren't expected in such a craft as this, Mr. Miller called the deck officer in the stern of the small boat, touching his cap. "'Never mind any conversation, my man,' broke in young Miller, testily. "'Lay right alongside and help get my father into your boat.' Hal and Epp, helping and piloting Mr. Miller over the side and getting him into the boat alongside, immediately afterwards the younger man jumped into the smaller boat. "'Oh, you're going with your father, are you?' hailed Mr. Farnham. "'Yes,' replied the son, coolly, though with another scowl. "'A thousand thanks for your kindness to us. Good-bye.' The small boat pulled off, making rapidly for the schooner. "'Well, full speed ahead for Dunhaven,' muttered Jacob Farnham. "'That's the queerest crowd I ever ran into. It's uncanny. All the way through, somehow, I can't shake off the impression that I've been engaged in some stealthy or nasty work. The run back to port was without incident, the submarine behaving perfectly on the surface. Indeed, all aboard were highly delighted with the new boat. Jack was still at the wheel as they glided into the little harbor. Anchor was dropped and power shut off. You three boys may as well stay aboard for the night, suggested Mr. Farnham, as the night watchman of the yard appeared, coming out in a rowboat. In fact, you may as well live aboard and use the pantry and galley for all your meals. "'Shall we keep watch through the night, sir?' asked Jack. "'No need. Let the yard watchman do that. It isn't far from daylight. Get yourself some coffee in the galley, have a good rub-down, spread your clothing to dry, and turn into the staterooms.' Grant Andrews went ashore with the builder and inventor. The first thing the submarine boys did was to start coffee in the galley. Next they rubbed down, got into dry underclothing, then sat down over their coffee. For some minutes they discussed the mystery of the night, making all manner of guesses. At last, however, they lay down in their berths of the staterooms and were soon sound asleep. Nor did any of them wake until Jack opened his eyes in the forenoon, when he heard someone coming down the spiral stairway. "'You boys awake?' bellowed the wrathful voice of Mr. Farnham. Instantly, almost, Two stateroom doors were yanked open while the builder went on. Oh, that was a fine trick they was played on us last night. As soon as I opened my eyes this morning, I telephoned Seaborg. 
I got the whole story. Arthur Miller is a defaulter to the tune of a very large fortune. He must have had the cash in that satchel, made us aid him in his flight, and put him beyond the reach of the law. Oh, if I ever get my hands on that rascal again! It was plain that the boatbuilder was angry all the way through. He stamped in a temper. As quickly as boys could get on their clothing, they came out to hear the rest of the story. Arthur Miller, resumed Mr. Farnham angrily, was supposed to be a rich man, and at one time no doubt he was, but he got into speculation. He was guardian of the fortune of his orphaned niece, Grace Desmond, a very sweet girl whom I've seen. Miller must have lost some of her fortune in his mad speculations. At any rate, he tried fearfully hard to marry his son Fred to her. I suppose that he felt if Miss Desmond became his daughter-in-law, she couldn't very well prosecute her faithless guardian. But Miss Desmond, who will be of age in a few days, would have none of her cousin Fred for a husband. She must have suspected much, too, for she had engaged lawyers and accountants to go over the state of her affairs. The whole party were at the house yesterday, when Miller and his son slipped out and got away in the son's sloop. It is believed that Arthur Miller converted all the rest of his niece's fortune into cash and arranged with the schooner to pick him up in the night. Ah, uh, then I think I understand, sir, broke in Jack quietly, how that sloop came to capsize. I couldn't understand that before, but Miller's father and son must have figured that the overturned sloop would be found and that they would be believed to have drowned. That would shut off the pursuit, so whichever of the pair is a good sailor. That's the son Fred, interposed Mr. Farnham. And Fred Miller, after fixing life preservers on both of them, must have watched for his chance at a good puff of wind, close hauled on the sheet, and sent the boat over. That explains why they weren't very cordial with us last night. Our overhauling them prevented their being reported drowned accidentally. Oh, confound them, drat them, roared Mr. Farnham, making me and the rest of us accomplices of a dastardly defaulter. If I ever run afoul of that crowd again, if I ever get my hands on them, won't I make them smart for their trick? Nor were the submarine boys much less angry over the part they had all been made to play. End of chapter 13 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan